Welcome to Eat the World, a podcast about food. My name is Rob Lewis. I'm a well-traveled eater and a fearless home cook. On my Instagram page, I have a community of people like me, talented home cooks from around the world that make the dishes that they love for their friends, families, and followers. For the sixth episode, I'm joined by Erica Tang, the Chinese foodie. Her Instagram feed began as an eclectic look at the range of cuisines London has to offer. During the lockdown, she pivoted her page to feature home-cooked meals inspired by her upbringing in Hubei province in central China. Welcome to the Eat the World podcast. I'm here with the Chinese foodie, Erica Tong. And Erica, why don't you tell me a little bit about yourself? Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me here. Um, so I am a product manager by day, and I do my food stuff by night, and now mostly during weekends, actually by day as well, because we now lose natural light, like mid-afternoon. So we try to do, I try to do more photography during the day. I started my food blog just about a year ago, uh, because friends and family started asking me for restaurant recommendations because I post a lot of food stuff in my personal Instagram. And then I kind of just thought, why not create one so they can go look there? So that's how I got started. It's interesting because when I look at your early Instagram posts, everything was restaurants, everything was going to different places and trying different foods. Also, almost from the get-go, you had thousands of followers. Um, that's not true. <laughs> I had zero follower to begin with, and it took me... If I remember correctly, it took me about six months or longer, maybe not longer, actually, maybe just about six months to get to 2,000, 3,000. And then from there on, it was faster. For the early 2,000, were there any secrets or any advice you'd give to a brand new Instagrammer? I mean, I just followed a bunch of food accounts that I thought looked great and engaged with them, uh, commented but not like comment looks great or comment this is awesome, but like actually comment on stuff, engage with them and kind of like talk a little bit rather than just being quite generic. So I, I guess over time people remember you and if they check back on you and they kind of like your post, they kind of become friends with you online, then that's how kind I kind of gathered alone a bunch of food friends. If you're getting engaged and you're becoming friends with someone who has lots and lots of followers, how does that translate into their followers becoming your followers? I don't think there is a huge correlation. Um, it's more that if they one day, for example, post about you or decide to do like a follow Friday kind of post and then they tag you and say go follow this person. I've done that for other people and other people have done that for me in the past and that will probably depending on the number of followers I've got like 200 in one day because of that. Wow. Yeah. Also looking at your early Instagram around the time that England started to go into lockdown there was a switch from restaurant food that looked amazing to your own dishes. And the response was, I couldn't even describe it. Why don't you tell me what it was like when you started posting your own food and you saw what the feedback was? That was very interesting. Um, so I've actually always cooked. I've been a cook since when I was like the earliest I remember was like 10 years old. Uh, I made my birthday dish. Uh, I still remember what it was, but I'm not going to go into detail right now. Um, but basically because of lockdown, 
first round, I had to start basically restaurants, everything was shut, like shut proper, rather than still offering takeaways and deliveries like now. You really had no choice. You just had to make your own food. So I had to post that because I don't have restaurant content. It was great. People actually loved seeing my home cooked stuff more so than the restaurant posts now, which I was initially quite surprised by because I didn't do anything special, special. I just did like the everyday kind of food or I actually did make an effort to make some bao buns, which I didn't used to make. Now I make them a lot. <laughs> like a shenjiang bao. That's something that you never made before? Um, I've made bao before, but not the crispy fried ones with soup inside. So yeah, that was something that I actually made for the first time in lockdown. And then I kind of just made twice or three times and then I got the proper hang of it. And I now have my own kind of set recipe I follow, which I've posted. And it's a guaranteed result. One of these dishes, a guo tie, which is a pan fried dumpling, the way that you present it is amazing. So to describe it, and I've had it, you know, going out lots and lots of times in Taipei, is they're dumplings and they're kind of stacked along in a row but there's a base of either starch or dumpling material. So it looks as though almost as if it's just sitting on like a, a fried pancake and you flipped yours. So you see the connection between the, the different quartier. It is beautiful. Thank you. Um, I actually don't really do a great job with the skirt that you described. Most of the time, I don't really bother. I just kind of go without it. But I think for the gram, I was making an extra effort and adding some. It wasn't like perfect, but you know. You get the idea. Yeah, I get the idea. It's great. A lot of your dishes at the very beginning were, I mean, I'd almost describe them as like Chinese comfort food. So there's a lot of noodles, a lot of dumplings. Yeah. Being in London, how do you find your ingredients? Was it difficult to build a Chinese cooking at home? And were you doing Chinese cooking at home before that? Yeah. So we actually eat uh, Chinese food at home most of the time and with some kind of oven made like basic stuff when you're busy. But mostly, yeah, we do Chinese at home. It's funny that you mentioned that actually because we're in London, it's so easy to get anything you want apart from the really regional stuff that, that you can't get like anywhere else. Like, for example, I'm from Hubei. And in Wuhan, we have like a vegetable. I don't even know the English name it's in Chinese. It's called Tai Tai. And it's a kind of green, leafy green. Uh, it's a little bit like Gailan, but it's, it's so special. You can't get it outside of Hubei. Stuff like that, you can't really get. But otherwise, I'd say London is pretty good for getting international ingredients, really. I think you're lucky. I mean, I lived in Singapore for a long time and coming back to the US, there are certain things that are the generic, if you can find it in the Asian market, you're okay. But most of the specialty leaves, like the curry leaves or the pandan leaves or any of those ingredients, I found it impossible to find unless I was willing to drive, you know, an hour plus to get into New York City. Yeah, I can imagine. Although a lot of the things we currently use, um, we, we buy also from Chinese supermarkets that are uh, luckily, we have two around us, and Sainsbury's also carry like, which is a local UK supermarket, a big chain. They also carry a Asian section that's pretty good. With the noodles that I saw on the Instagram, a lot of them you actually make yourself. Yes. Was this something that you were doing when you were a young girl, or is this something that you just started doing once you moved overseas? Um, I never used to make my own noodles because you don't do that in China. You just don't make your own stuff you go out and you buy it it's like five kwai like 
why would you ever do that? The answer is no, not really. Uh, no one did that. And um, because we're now, I'm now here and I don't have the option or like the leisure to actually buy them. I'd have to make them myself if I want fresh noodles. That's so funny. So I lived in Asia for 20 years. I had the same experience. So I love cooking, but why would I make fishbowl noodles? I, you know, as you say, you know, five kwai or wu kwai is about 70 cents US for a beautiful bowl of noodles. There's no point. Like I could make it myself, but it would take two hours. It wouldn't taste good. The kitchen would be a mess and it's pointless. Yeah, it's just a lot of effort. Uh, it's not It's not a high ROI if you want to be a bit more cynical about it. Before we started this podcast, you and I had a chat and we thought we'll both make the same dish and we'll see how it turns out. And we made uh, mian, which is literally hot, dry noodles. Can you tell me a little bit about the dish and what does it mean to you? Okay, so mian is actually a Wuhan and Hubei dish. It's typically known as Wuhan mian, i.e. credited to Wuhan specifically. But in reality, I'd say it's a noodle dish that's very common uh, in my hometown, which is actually outside Wuhan as well in Hubei. So I think it's a, it's a quite regional dish, that's correct, but it's a Hubei-wide kind of regional dish. So Mian is a very common breakfast and lunchtime item. I don't really see people having it for dinner, if I recall correctly, but it's also a really good midnight snack for after you're out and about with your friends and then you drank a lot and then like, I don't know, 1 a.m. or 2 a.m., you still find a lot of ryogamian places open at night and you can just go and grab some ryogamian or beef noodles and other noodle, yeah, noodle places in general will still serve you food then. Yeah, so believe it or not, this was the first time I actually ate the dish. Um, most of my time in China was spent in, in Shanghai and in southern China and Hong Kong. So it's not something that you'd find there versus, you know, all the all the typical Hong Kong noodles or the typical Hong Kong rice dishes and the Shanghai dishes is different. So I'm starting from a blank slate. It was hard. I was surprised how many steps were involved. Can we go through the ingredients and tell me a little bit about how you did it? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Um, Before that, actually, can I ask you, how did you like it? What did you think? Oh, I loved it. It was great. It had the underlying base like there's uh there are a couple tablespoons of like a beef stock which has a strong anise taste to it and then the uh, sesame together were, were, it's absolutely delicious the the only thing that i found which was a joke which is a hard joke for people who don't speak chinese is like so rugan mian the second gun is uh it's dry but it also means clean right and my kitchen was anything but clean after making this dish because of all the different things you had to put together and dealing with the noodles and the flour and and all the different things but other than that, it was it was a delight. Oh, cool! I'm happy you um, enjoyed it. But yeah, it's it's it is a lot of effort. I was actually quite stunned as well. This is, to be honest, the first time ever I've made this as well. Uh, believe it or not, I've actually researched it a bit online and then tested the noodle one day ahead. But basically, to describe the whole process, um, I actually made my own pickles as well, actually. I saw that. I felt so bad. So we, t- we spoke first, and I asked you, hey, are you going to make your own noodles? Because it's alkaline noodles, and it's involved. 
And then you said yes. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that. But then when I saw that you posted your pickles in a jar, I thought, oh, I'm, th- this whole thing is going to be a, a joke. And, and we'll talk about each ingredient and how I cut corners along the way, but it still turned out okay. But let's start with the noodles. Go ahead. Yes. So the noodles um, is kind of really straightforward uh, when it comes to noodle making. Uh, I have my kind of ratio. So I use like 400 grams of flour. Uh, ideally, you need bread flour or high gluten flour, but I used plain flour because that's what I had. And then I basically just uh, put in, is it like 1%? I think so, 1%. So I put in four to five grams of uh, baked baking powder, which is the alkaline that we are using this time because uh, we didn't have can soy. A little bit of salt as well, similar amount. And that was my dough, really. And the water, uh, I think it was about 160. No, 160. I can't remember the exact amount, but it's like a drier dough. I think it's what was about. 40%, if I'm correct, in the hydration. I've seen it online as low as 25%, which is a really hard dough to work with. I don't think you can do that at home, to be honest. I think you'd need like proper factory setup or like the, the proper machines. Because I have a hand roller, the pasta hand roller. Okay. So I, I don't even have like a motor or anything. So actually, it took me forever to like feed the dough in bit by bit and trying to get them to it stick together because they were so horribly dry. Yeah, it took a while. I ended up buying a roller attachment to my KitchenAid because I had tried making alkaline noodles before where I just used a uh, rolling pin. I did hand kneading and a rolling pin. It is so much work because the dough, it's a very hard dough. And this time I ended up using 50% bread flour, 50% all-purpose flour only because I had 200 grams of bread flour left. So I had to make do. But by using a rolling machine, it's, oh, it's so easy. Yeah, it's so much easier. Oh my God, I'm so jealous. I want a kitchen as well. But I haven't invested in one because um, we live in a very small space at the moment. Our noodles were roughly the same, although with the help of a motorized KitchenAid roller. And did you hand cut your noodles or did you have a uh, like a spaghetti attachment? Yes, I bought a spaghetti attachment specifically to make this because I have the thinner attachment and the white, like the initial one. So you have like a really thin one and then like a white noodle one, but spaghetti, the round one, I didn't have. So I bought one to make her because it's supposed to be round. Ah, okay. It's supposed to be round. Mine was square because I used the spaghetti attachment as well, but that's okay. We both did it. That's okay. Next ingredient. Yeah. What, what else did you make? The noodles were just freshly made and pressed out and then then you kind of boil the noodles to kind of like half cook and then take them out. Leave them, you need to kind of like quickly air them to dry. I actually dunk them in cold water as well to help them cool down before I moved on to kind of trying to dry them in oil as well. Yeah, really smart because you want to get the noodles as chewy as possible. Yeah, exactly. And that's a really key step uh, that helps that texture because otherwise it's just all kind of like a lump together. Apart from the noodles, you then have the pickles. Obviously, I didn't make all the pickles. I made the orange pickle, not orange, radish pickle that looks orange and a radish pickle that's white as well, which is an extra thing. We can talk about that later. Then once you have your pickles, I also bought, uh, used a shop 
bought a green pickle, green bean pickle, and then it's just your sesame paste, right? So I've got, I've made actually two versions. I used a white sesame paste that I bought from a Chinese shop. You just kind of like make it slightly less dense with more oil addition and kind of stir. But I also made a black paste. Uh, obviously using black sesame, and that was actually done at home. So I made that from scratch as well. Kudos to you! I did my sesame paste was a white sesame paste that I bought from a jar. The black sesame paste. How did you do it? So it's really simple, actually.、Um, you kind of grab the black sesames. I actually used two portion of black sesame and one portion of white to get that like not too dark a color. And then you toast them first in a pan until they kind of go, they、uh, kind of like more cooked. And then you just put them in the what's the word I'm looking for? Did you pound it in like a mortar and pestle, or did you put a grind? Do you ground it in a in a blender? Grind it, yes, in a blender、uh, until it's really really fine. And then you add a little sesame oil to it. Um, until you can't really grind any further, you add a bit more sesame oil, and then you grind again until it's a kind of like a smooth paste. Awesome. Back to the radish. I saw that you bought basically a radish from scratch, salted and sugared it, drained the water, and then pretty much spicy pickled it. Yes,、um, it's actually really straightforward. And one radish gave me two jars of pickles, which I was really happy about. Exactly like you said, just salt and sugar. To drain the water out, and then you just basically kind of make a spicy paste,、uh, similar to like a kimchi paste, depending on what you like. You can put different things into it. So this one, I, I completely cheated. I ended up buying. It's a salted radish, so it's not a salted pickled radish. It, I guess it's pickled, but it's not spicy pickled. So I had to soak it in water to unsalt it. And then I cured it in a Korean pepper paste, like a gochujaru, and then five spice for a few days, just to get the color and just to get the、um, the flavor and a little bit of heat. Yeah, that that sounds good. It still worked. I got the right crunch and I got the right taste. And without it, I would have missed something. And it didn't taste too oversalted. So sometimes the Chinese pickled or Chinese salted vegetables are they start out oversalted. But you have to work it down, so to speak. Yeah. So the shop bought ones actually、uh, are often quite salty. But there is—I don't know if it's a trick. I always take them out and like fry them in a tiny bit of oil first, because of the kind of heating up and the frying in the process. You can then—I don't know—it has—it adds an extra layer of flavor that you don't have if you just eat them straight out of the bag. I don't know if it helps with the saltiness, but I always find. Pickles like fried is much nicer than just ate straight away. Nice, nice trick. Okay, what else? There's we we went with noodles, radish, sesame. Did you make a luche? And、uh, no. So actually, interestingly, this is a new knowledge to me as well. So I was watching some documentaries about、uh, Rogamian and、um, Wuhan, and I realized that even though the shop ones. I used to eat in Wuhan. Did have the luche, or like sometimes it's like not by default. You have to ask for it. You can ask like, can I have some luche? In fact, in the old traditional style of rogan mian, you do not have luche. It's it's a it's kind of a 
new addition when younger people or migrants from other cities come. They kind of discover, oh, this is quite nice with a little bit of the lu shui, and then that became a thing. That's interesting. So I think one of the challenges for cooking food that's outside my culture is all of these little nuances. I need someone to guide me through. So I I made a lu shui, but you know the normal lu shui is like a, a seasoned beef stock. You know, you you find sometimes you see seasoned beef stock in different types of chi- of local Chinese either restaurants or daipadongs or noodle shops. But it's basically vats of boiling organs and bones that are that seasoned, and then they draw off a little bit for flavor. And I didn't have the time to make vats of organs and bones, mm-hmm. so I used a tradi- uh, like a canned or a jarred beef stock. But I was able to add, you know, the cinnamon, anise, uh, Chinese peppercorns, which I have tons of now, um, and which is great because I'm going to make like a. Um, like a, a shuiju ro or um, like a, a very spicy Sichuan meat or, or, or sliced fish dish coming up because I've got so much of this. That adds the fragrance to the beef stock. And then a couple tablespoons is all you need for the recipe. Yeah. Um, so yeah, lu shui is actually a very generic term that refers to spiced uh, broth, but you can put beef in it. You can put egg in it. You can put pork in it. You can put like bean curds in it. I grew up on this stuff. Um, so yeah, it's a very common kind of thing you have. So yeah, so I made it and it was, you know, you don't have to make that much. You add it and it was it was great. And then the other thing that I added, which I added basically jarred chili flakes. Okay. So I added chili oil rather than flakes because um, chili flakes is um, common in, I would say, north or northwest China a bit more. Whereas in where I'm from, you commonly see like the chili flakes has like in the oil form. So they'd already have put oil on top of it and sizzled it beforehand. And in the shop, you see like a little jar of chili oil that you can scoop out and put on top of your noodle. The jar of chili oil that has the black flakes on the bottom, like the, 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 it's not black flake, it's, it's flakes of like pepper seeds, but it's in the bottom of the oil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. It's like a dark red uh, kind of like, yeah, flakes and oil, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's what I used. Not, ju- not just dry flakes on top like you'd put on like a pizza or something. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. And then you mix it up? Yeah. So I used just, without lu shui, I actually used um, some soy sauce, a little bit of vinegar, and a little bit of dark soy sauce just for color. And that's what I used for like seasoning proper. Yes, I used that. So I used the dark. So I, I think I put in soy sauce into the lu shui, and I and I gave a couple squirts of dark soy sauce for color as well. How did it go over? It was great. Um, I think I sent you the pictures. How did you like them? I liked them great. My wife loved it. I loved it. Kids loved it. Everyone loved it. Um, because I think there's some dishes that I make that everyone says, okay, this is really great. This this fell into the category. If I had to make a Venn diagram of Dishes I would make again, so there's a circle there, dishes that create too much mess in the kitchen. And it's in that overlap that it has to be very specific. So a dish that I would make again that doesn't make too much mess in the kitchen is an easy goer. Yeah. Something that doesn't taste great but is is clean. Yeah, that doesn't hit it. But the worst is obviously bad and messy. But this was very good but messy. Mm. I'm glad. At least it was good. <laughs> oh, it was great. 
off onto other other topics because I want to talk about noodles and I, and I want to talk about dumplings a lot. Were you making dumplings growing up or is this something once again that you thought, oh, it's just so easy to go to a shop. Why would I make this for myself? Okay, so dumplings is actually one thing that I made growing up a lot. Like I said, probably since I was like in my early teens. And so the thing is, no one ever buys pre-made dumplings ever, like where I'm from. You possibly will buy the dumpling wrappers if you're lazy or if your family is lazy. But most families, not including mine, family was lazy. But most families will actually be happily making their own uh, wrappers as well and make their own dumplings. And dumpling making is a kind of festive a family kind of activity. You do it together with other people. You don't make dumplings on your own. You make dumplings. I make dumplings with my mom, with my aunties, with my grandmother. You know, it was like a group activity rather than like something you do on your own. There's an interesting shift here. In China, you would go out to eat dumplings, right? That wouldn't be a hard thing to do. Yes. And you'd eat dumplings at home, but you wouldn't buy dumplings to bring to your home to boil. You'd make them yourself. Yes. Is there a reason behind that? I don't really know. That's just how things were. I guess um, for the homemade dumplings is the fact that it's homemade, it's festive, it's a thing that kind of it's a group activity that helps your family bond. And then when you're going out to eat dumplings that are restaurant made and you eat it right there, it's just going out to eat, which is also a normal thing to do. But to buy dumplings and bring it back home is kind of either neither here nor there. It's kind of like a weird, like, what do you gain from it? I would recommend for anybody who who has any interest in dumplings, they have to go to your Instagram page and they have to find the videos of you pleating dumplings because it is such a satisfying joy to watch. Thank you so much. Um, it actually took me a while to get the hang of making clear videos. I don't have a proper setup at home. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm pretty proud of the two, so far, two very clear dumpling pleating videos that I've made. The first one is like a normal shui jiao, which is almost like a crescent pleated dumpling. And I thought, okay, this is symmetrical and beautiful and amazing. Then when I saw that you were doing the pleating for uh, bao, which is the soup dumplings, it's a whole new level. Yeah, that is um, actually, the pleating itself isn't that hard, but it's the bao in particular. I don't think I've got it right 100% uh, with what I've made. It's a really challenging process because the skin has to be like, the wrapper has to be really thin. Uh, it does present a little more challenge than the regular dumpling. So what's harder, the bao making the clear skin or getting the uh, the soup jelly just right? Oh, the filling is really easy. You get the ratio right. It's, it's pretty easy. The key of a good bao is the skin. It has to be both quite thin and also quite durable. So it doesn't break straight away when it got thin. Is there a trick to it? I don't think I know the secret. So my dough was... I can't even remember. It was so long ago. I only made it once. No, twice, twice. The second time I tried to improve it. But I feel like it, like you say, the ROI is too low. The return of investment of my time, of the mess I make in my kitchen. It's, it's just, and the outcome is not always 100%. 
So like I actually had shallow uh, bowel that were popping because the skin was too thin or not strong enough. So it's not all like glory. I'm good at everything. I also like kind of stumble there as well. There's a part on Reddit, which is Instagram reality, which shows like everybody's edited Instagram versus real life reality. They should have a version of Instagram reality of the kitchen, like where you where you have on the one hand, the perfectly plated noodle, but then on the other hand, you, you, you screen away to everything else that got either thrown away or will be eaten in a separate bowl that no one gets to see, still tastes great, but isn't Instagram worthy, I suppose. Yeah, I do do some um, story posts of my regular meals that aren't necessarily for Instagram. So people get a handle of like what I eat on a day-to-day basis rather than like what I post. Obviously, only the best stuff or photogenic stuff makes to the post. Yeah, I've given up. Basically, if I'm going to serve it in front of my family, I'm going to post it on Instagram. So aesthetically, it's not as perfect, but it's the reality of what I'm home cooking. Yeah, I think that that's cool too. Like it depends on what kind of a feed you want to have. For me, I'm not like, so you know, there are like food bloggers that are like really perfect. They set up a studio or like a backdrop and, you know, do styling and everything. And it looks like unreal dreamy pictures. That's not me. I would say my dishes are relatively realistic. I'm presenting what I'm eating just with a little bit of flair. I don't set up complex stuff. Okay, I'm going to call you out on that because there's one thing that I saw which completely blew my mind. And the dishes, uh, Beyond Beyond Man, it's basically like a, a super pulled noodle that you show a video of you making that. And I thought, oh, this is the stretchiness and the perfection. How did you learn how to do it? And can you talk a little bit about that type of noodle and that type of process? Okay, so Biang Biang Mian is something, again, I've not made before. I've had before when uh, I was traveling in Xi'an and I had some uh, from restaurants. But it's a thing that I learned to make by watching a YouTube channel. I don't know, if should I name it? If you want to, call them out. Did you like it? Did, were they helpful? This is like a cult channel that I... Um, really adore but it, the only downside is she does not do english subs oh that's fine only in chinese but you can see like what she's doing in the video pretty clearly and the recipes usually written uh i think it's called magic ingredients xiaogaojie the magic ingredients but if you search magic ingredients in youtube i think you you would have her it's a, a chinese lady xiaogao okay oh my god I'm watch I'm looking at her make mooncakes. She makes absolutely everything you can think of and her videos so what I love about her videos is that she does not only tell you how to make things she tells you why you are making it this way like the the chemistry behind it and like how things work it's it's really broken down like in a very helpful way. Wow, but there's subtitles there's English subtitles. Oh, maybe that's a new thing. I don't know. I, I don't ever look at it. So perhaps there is. That, that's good news then. That's great news. Oh, this is this is a real plus. Okay. Big shout out to... Xiaogaojie, the magic ingredients. Nice. Okay. So, she, so you saw a video of how to make these noodles from there. And then what happened? Basically, she explains a lot about how to treat doughs. Rather, I would say rather than how to make the noodles themselves, what I learned from her videos is like 
what kind of dough has what kind of characteristics and how to deal with them, like how much water you should give them, how long should it rest to have what kind of texture. It's more that. But for biang biang mian, especially, you kind of just do. It's a, it's a standard noodle dough, really. It doesn't have anything tricky. It's just flour, water, a little bit of salt. Uh, and water is about 50-60%, depending on like the um, temperature or the flour you're using. So what you're looking for is actually the the hand feel you have once you're kneading the dough. It's very hard to explain, but you get it right by actually seeing the result. And then um, what what's really smart about her dough treatments is that, you know, how you can find it really hard to knead a dough uh, just when you put it together. Her explanation is that the glutens haven't formed and the water and the flour haven't like really hugged each other properly yet. So you give them 20 minutes for them to know each other and then you come back to knead. What you would have needed for 20 minutes now only takes two minutes. That makes a lot of sense. Since the glutens have formed just passively, that gives it enough stretchiness to to be able to try to do this, this stretching technique. Yes. And um, it actually takes longer for the stretching bit. So what I was just described is the initial dough making. And then once you knit it into a smooth dough, after you let it kind of rest for 20 minutes, uh, you then kind of divide the dough into appropriate portions and then oil them like really well so they don't dry out at all. And then you let it sit for as long as you want, ideally like overnight. The next day you will have like a really well-rested dough. Uh, but I think four hours plus is, is enough. So it will be really stretchy. And then all you do is just pull it because it's ready to and be pulled. And because it's an oiled dough, does it make a mess in the kitchen or generally speaking, okay? Not really. The main purpose of the oil is just to, like I said, keep it moist. So it doesn't really matter. I mean, the worktop will have a little bit of oil, but then once you pull it, you you have to boil it straight away. So you actually do... So this noodle, you can't pile up once you pulled it. You have to drop it in hot water straight away. What I saw with yours was it was a single pull. Do you fold it over and do multiple pulls or is it that, not that kind of noodle? I think you're thinking of more like the hand-pulled noodles. Yes. Also, it's like typically most well-known is the Lanzhou right. Lamian, that kind of noodle. I've not made that at home. Uh, it's the thing that I aspire to make because just to advertise my hometown a little bit, they probably it probably isn't well known. But in my hometown, this is the weirdest thing. We have a kind of version of almost a version of the Lanjo noodles that's thicker, that's more beefy, that's like spicier and it's saltier. And in my hometown alone, we have like some 50 noodle shops that does this for breakfast every day. That's my hometown dish. I, I tried making a pulled noodle. It was a disaster. It's on my list of things that I want to try again to get quite right. There are two other dumpling slash noodle things that are on my list to try. The uh, Shenzhang Bao. Your Shenzhang Bao is beautiful. Really great. But that seems like more of a Northern dish to me. Am I mistaken? Um, so Shenzhang Bao is actually a Shanghai dish. Okay. Yeah, so it's a Shanghainese um, thing. 
And the famous one is called Xiaoyang Shengjian, and like every Shanghai person should know what that is. I've only ever been to Shanghai a couple times, but Shengjian Bao is a thing that weirdly, again, my hometown used to have, but no longer. When I was a child, there was this really great Shengjian Bao stool that I used to go to every single day. But then things got redeveloped, and the the shop got bought out. There's new buildings put up, and and the shop owner was gone. So I I never had that after in my hometown. One of the other things that I've noticed from your Instagram posts is that your home cooking at the very beginning w- was a lot of noodles, a lot of Chinese dishes. At some point, you also gave a go to trying. Different types of baked things like the Bass cheesecake or the garlic and butter filled bread or the matcha banana bread were those things that you were making before, or was this a, just a extension of the things that you were trying since you were on lockdown? It's the latter. I don't really bake. I don't know how to bake. I tried some recipes and tested some things. I actually made、uh, five cheesecakes in total. I think since lockdown, which is quite a lot considering I've never made. One before I, typically, I, I wasn't a big baker, but I found that with the lockdown, I was baking breads and different types of breads, and like a milk bread, and trying different techniques. Practice makes perfect, but you just like things like pizza. Last night, I made a white clam、uh, pizza pie, which is very—it's typical to the part of the U.S. that I'm from. But the starting point of just building a pizza dough, like I don't even think about it anymore. It just Measured out, kneaded out, let it sit, and you know becomes almost automatic. Like I imagine, like making a dumpling wrapper for you is at this point. Yeah, I think I think that that that's really cool, and that that is what dumpling making is like for me. Whereas for me, thinking about baking and making the cakes, I can't do it, but it's a lot of pressure because it's a thing that I'm not familiar with. Even after trying a few times, obviously, I think it just takes time. I don't really have a massively sweet tooth, so for me it was more kind of like a a holiday from dumplings. It does. Okay, so my last question for you is: What advice would you give to Instagram creators when they're approaching their site or when they're trying to build their base? I guess the best advice I could give is just be yourself, which is really, really what I feel strongly about because I think. When you're on social media, it's easy to try or want to become something that's more glamorous or that's a bit more pretty, more better. But for me, I think it's important to make sure that you and your characteristics come across in your post, whatever you're doing, whether it's food, whether it's something else. People won't connect with you if they don't feel that they know who you are. And if you're like too not yourself because you want to be better, then either you kind of burn out in the end, or people just won't connect. Makes a lot of sense. This has been a fun conversation. I can't wait to share this with our listeners and to share the dish that we made together. Once again, thanks for joining us, and thanks for listening to the Eat the World podcast. <laughs>